How y'all doing? Doing okay? I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 is where we'll be camped out this morning. Luke 10, verse 25 through 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to tell you a quick story to get us thinking about this passage. There was a lawyer, a lawyer and the Pope riding an elevator to heaven. And when they got to heaven, they got off the elevator and this large crowd of angels and saints were running towards them. And they pick up the lawyer, put him on their shoulders and just take him down the golden street celebrating. And there was the Pope looking all dejected. St. Peter said, Brother, don't you worry about it. We get a lot of popes, but it's not every day we get a lawyer. <laughs> so I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We have some good, good attorneys in our church we're so thankful for. There's probably more attorneys in heaven than there are priests, maybe even pastors. You know how you can't trust a white doctor. Uh, Doc's going to be mad at me for this one. You know why you can't trust a doctor or a lawyer? Because they both practice their profession. Now, some of you are going to get that a little later after lunch, okay? But no, in this passage, there's an attorney. He's an attorney, and he tries to trick the Lord. He tries to invite Jesus to debate him. And so let's see what happens here in Luke chapter 10. Verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him being Jesus. And he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And you said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and He tells him this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw that he had passed, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal 
and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, now Jesus is asking a question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the attorney replied, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Wow. You may have heard this parable before, right? Many of us. Well, I hope that even though it may be a familiar passage, that God can say something to you and encourage your heart today through this passage. In Luke 10, this attorney, he's really not seeking out the truth. Verse 25, he was trying to debate Jesus. By the way, when you try to debate God, you're going to lose every time. And he asked this question. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there was his problem. His question was flawed from the beginning. What shall I do to inherit eternal life. You see, the lawyer's problem was he hadn't been spending time in the Word of God. He forgot what God's Word said. Because Jesus, it was not uh, an untold thing what he was saying when he was going around doing ministry. He said in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That spread like wildfire through every town, every village, every community. It was on the Jerusalem Daily News. Jesus is saying that God has sent him to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist sees Jesus show up. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus said, unashamed, out in front of every, God and everybody, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So had this attorney been reading the news, he would have known exactly what Jesus was proclaiming and professing to be. And also, if he would have read his Bible, his Old Testament Bible, he would have known that in Genesis 15, Abraham believe, Abram believed in the Lord, and he counted, he being God, counted it to him as righteousness. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, But the righteous shall live by Faith. Faith. So the way of salvation is faith in the Lord, through repentance and faith in the Lord. Old Testament looked towards the Messiah. We look back at the Messiah who has come on the New Testament, New Church, New Testament mindset. So the lawyer here should have read more of his Bible. He did not submit his life under the authority of of the Word of God. And I want to ask you this question. I want to ask me this question. Have, have we today, are we today submitting our life under the authority of the Word of God? You know how to find out if somebody's running from the Lord? We've all been there, haven't we? We don't want to, we don't want to hear the Word. You know, a person that's running hard from the Lord, they figure out a way to get out of the reading of the Word. They figure out how to get it. Get out from under 
having to sit through somebody reading the text. They find out a way to get out of that Bible study. Now, if it's a Bible study that just does prayer requests the whole time or, or talks about missions, oh, they'll stay for that. But when you start breaking out the Word of God, I've got to go to the restroom. Or maybe I need to go check on so-and-so. Or I've got to go to the market. And so the Word of God, when we're running far from the Lord, we don't want to be around it, do we? It hurts. It's like a mirror, and it does not lie. It tells the truth. It convicts us. It does surgery on our hearts. This attorney, he wasn't living his life under the authority of the Word of God. The Bible says that it judges our insides. It's like an x-ray. It judges our insides, even down to the, the marrow inside of our bones, the Bible says. So what authority to this morning, what authority does the Bible have over our lives? I would argue it has total authority over us. I want to give a few evidences and examples of why we know the Bible is inspired. And when I say inspired, I mean, just as the Bible says, it was carried along by the Holy Spirit, these authors that wrote it, and it was inspired supernaturally from the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You say, well, I got to go serve the Lord. I don't have time to spend sitting under the authority of the Word of God. I got to go serve. Well, if you read the Bible, you'll find out you'll be a better servant if you spend time under the Word of God. So here's some examples why we know the Bible is inspired. Number one, numero uno. Verse 1, would an uninspired Bible depict the true state of man? Would an uninspired Bible depict the true state of man? Now, we'll get to the Samaritan shortly, but let's talk about the authority of the Word of God. The Bible does not glorify men and women like we see today in musical performances, romantic literature, uh, and theater. In fact, the Bible, no man or woman edited God's Word. In fact, God spoke it, and it didn't have to be edited. It was, it was full of, it was per- perfect. And so if mankind, if it was not inspired, Moses probably would have edited out, well, when I killed that guy, yeah, let's take that out of there as I'm writing down the Torah. Yeah, I killed somebody. We need to take that out. But he didn't. Well, Moses made these mistakes here. No, Moses would not have recorded those things. The Apostle Paul, he would not have put in his pens that I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. He would not have included those type of things. And prophet after prophet, writing down the Word of God, they would have not included the failures and faults of men and women. The Bible shows and reveals that in every circumstance, when it's left up to people, apart from God, we blow it every time. We are all one step away from absurdity. J.C. Ryle, the greatest great British scholar, says, We find man is corrupt after the loss of paradise, 
In the Word of God, we find that mankind is corrupt after the flood. We find that man is corrupt when fenced in by divine laws and commandments. Corrupt when the Son of God came down and visited him in the flesh. Corrupt in the face of warnings, promises, miracles, judgments, mercies. In one word, it shows mankind to be by nature always a sinner. Now, why would the Bible include that if it was just a a book? It would not. An uninspired Bible may include, would probably not include those things. So number two, would an uninspired, would an uninspired Bible have so many answers to life's greatest questions? The greatest questions we come up with today, most of them can be found in the Word of God. Well, how did the universe get started? It's in the book. What's the purpose of life? It's in the book. What's heaven going to be like? What's after this life? It's in the book. We have the answers to most these large, great questions. Why is the world so full of pain and hurt, and like we saw in the shooting yesterday? Because sin is coming to this world, and we have an adversary who is very real. How do we find salvation? It's in the book. Not laws or education or effort, but salvation has to be purchased by someone greater than us. What, what's in the future? Well, the Bible tells us, and by the way, it keeps fulfilling prophecies year after year. Billy Graham says the Bible is the only book in the world that predicts the future. The Bible is more modern than tomorrow morning's newspaper. Only an inspired word would have so many answers to our greatest questions. Third example. Third question. Would an uninspired Bible have so much harmony? Let's think about it. A manuscript, Charlie Campbell, scholar, writes... A manuscript is a surviving handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates the invention of the printing press, which was invented in 1455. Ancient document. Do you know that today there are over 25,000 partial and complete ancient handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament, as well as thousands of copies of the Old Testament? Many of those predated the time of Jesus. It's incredible. There's no other historical document that we have on the, all the earth that has as many transcripts, ancient historical verifications as the Bible. It's not even close. And how about this? Written by over 40 different authors, spanning a time of 1,500 years, many of whom did not know each other, and it fits together perfectly. Have you ever tried to find three people? They saw the same thing happen, and they don't know each other, and you try to get them to all agree on the facts. I mean, it's very difficult. But in the Bible, you see perfect harmony. You see it has not changed. In fact, if you look at all the manuscripts and put them together, they 99.9% match up. You say, well, what's the point 1%? The point 1% is misspelled words as they were copying it down. You see, maybe a comma was left off. But you never see, not one time, transcribed over thousands of years, that one doctrinal meaning has been changed. That one sentence has been changed. 
Isn't that incredible? The fact that that has happened is only a miracle of God. You know, the Book of Mormon, written in 1830 by Joseph Smith, do you know that it has had 4,000 changes since it was written? 4,000. Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the most perfect book ever written. If that's so true, why did they need to change it 4,000 times? You know, the Koran, the Islamic text today, has hundreds of variations, places where the manuscripts do not match. There's over 100 clear contradictions in the Koran. But God's Word is timeless. No other ancient document has the historical accuracy and the number of documented ancient historical sources. Think of the authors. One was a lawgiver, one was a king, one was a warlike king, another was a peaceful king. Two were fishermen, some were, one was a learned Pharisee, several were priests, one was a doctor. Many different social classes, many different careers, and yet there's perfect harmony from Genesis to Revelation. They all write as if they are under one dictation. The style and the handwriting may vary, but the mind that runs through the work is the same. They all tell the same story. They all give one account of creation. They all give one account of God. They give one way of salvation. They give one account of the human heart. And the only way for this to be possible is that the Bible is from God, not man. Only a God-breathed Bible would have perfect harmony. What in, number four, y'all still with me? Would an inspired Bible written thousands of years ago, verify modern science? Great question. Would it verify modern science, good science? Well, no other book in history has been as scientifically accurate as the Bible. Example, Isaiah 40, 22, written 700 B.C., says that it is he, talking about God, who sits above the circle of the earth. You see, all the people thought the earth was flat for so many thousands of years. If they had just read their Bible, they'd have seen that more than once it talks about the earth being a circle. Before the invention of the telescope, people believed that the numbers, that the stars could actually be numbered, and we could write them down and name them, and we had it. Okay, so I'm going to give you three different astronomers by the way, they were the best of the best during their time of, of living, being alive. The Greek astronomer and mathematician Hipparchus in 190 B.C. claimed there were 1,026 stars. Okay? The astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy, he lived in A.D. 85 to 165, said that there was 1,056 stars. The German astronomer Johannes Kepler, 1571 to 1630 is when he lived. That was not that long ago. Counted 1,006 stars and named them. And they would, they would publish these books, and they cost a lot of money to, to find out where the stars are and their names. But if they would have read their Bible... If they were to look at Jeremiah 33, 22, it says, The host of heaven, a reference to the stars, the host of heaven cannot be numbered, 
nor the sand of the sea measured. In other words, God's word lays out that there's so many stars they cannot be numbered. 1608, a man by the name of what created the telescope? Anybody? Galileo. Galileo was a believer. He was a Christian. And so he, when he first put that telescope into the sky, he found out that all these other astronomers were wrong. And there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars. Jeremiah penciled his words 2,000 years before Galileo made his discovery. Today, 2018, Yale University astronomer Peter Van Dokum and Harvard astrophysicist Charlie Conroy believe there are a minimum of 300 sextillion stars. And most world astronomers would agree with them. 300 sextillion stars. You think the Lord can't take care of your life? He takes care of all those stars. Three. Put a three and then put 23 zeros. That's how many stars they've counted. 23 zeros. Take three trillion and you multiply three trillion. You can get your calculator out. 3 trillion times 100 billion, and that's how many stars they believe are out there. And that's just at a minimum. In fact, we know that there's stars being created all the time. The Bible says God knows them and calls them by name, every one of them. Wow. The Word of God is the authority. And this attorney, he didn't want to hear the word. But every time Jesus was speaking, it was the word of God. And so this attorney says, well, who is my neighbor, Jesus? The question today is not who is my neighbor, but the question for all of us to ask ourselves is, to whom can I be a neighbor? To whom can I be a neighbor? He tries to trick the Lord. And so Jesus shares this story, this parable. He says they were going down from Jerusalem. There was a Jewish man who was beaten, who was left for dead. And so we see three different gentlemen come by. Very familiar passage. Number one, we see the priest came along, descendant of Aaron. A few possibilities. Why didn't he help? Why didn't he help the man? Well, we can make excuses for him if we want to. The priest's job was to handle the sacrificial lambs to maintain the temple. Old Testament law forbid the priest to touch a dead body. He would be rendered unfit to perform his duties. Well, well, that may be true. Number two, here's another possibility. He probably feared for his own life. He shows up. He sees this man who's been beaten up and robbed. He thinks, well, that happened to him. I need to scoot on out of here. I need to get away. It could happen to me too. So he left. The Bible says he saw him. You do a language study, you see that saw means he, he, had, he realized who this man was. He would probably recognize he was a Jewish man. He didn't care. He kept going. Number two, a Levite came by, a descendant of Levi. Same thing. He was supposed to be helping the priest. But he, the Bible says, saw him and passed by. 
Number three, Samaritan shows up. Oh, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other's guts. Oh, they were bitter enemies. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had all these outsiders brought in over thousands of years, and, and they intermarried, and, and there was a, they, they were considered the scum of the earth to the Jewish people. They, they were dirty. They were unclean. They called the Samaritans rebels. They called the Samaritans half-breeds. And so in return, the Samaritans, they didn't like the Jews. They didn't like them at all. There was racism and prejudice in the heart of many of these Jewish people and in the heart of many of these Samaritans. Can I say there's no room for racism in the kingdom of God? There's no room for racism at all in the church. There's no room for racism in the life of a believer. If there is, then we will not have true fellowship with the Lord. We can fool ourselves and think we know what we're doing, but at the end of the day, God sees the heart. If you have racism in your heart towards other people, then you will not have good fellowship with the King of Kings. You know why? Because God loves all people. Red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in His sight. God does not tolerate sin. He crushes it. He nails it to the cross. God hates sin. People cannot choose where they were born, the mom or dad they were born, the family they're born into. People cannot choose the color of their skin. People cannot choose what country they're born into. And when we have prejudice in our heart, I believe it breaks the heart of God. I'm so thankful that we have a church that welcomes all people. And if we're biblical, we will always be that way. We don't care what color you are, what background, what country you're from. We don't care where you work. You're welcome at the house of God. It doesn't matter if you have tattoos from your toenails to your scalp. It doesn't matter if you have earrings all over everywhere. You're welcome at the house of God. doesn't mean you have to like somebody's wardrobe choices. That's why I wore this orange jacket as I thought about this sermon. Somebody asked me at first service, did you get that at dirt cheap? I said, no, but it was dirt cheap. 20 bucks. Why would you pay a lot of money for a jacket? I don't understand that. So you don't have to like somebody's wardrobe choices to have fellowship with them. You say, Pastor, why are we talking about this? Here's why. I want to say something very serious. The people that I continue to invite to come to our church in Hancock County, a lot of times this will come up. Pastor, I don't have any church clothes. Have you found that as you invite people to church? You invite people long enough and you'll find, you'll find somebody that says that. They actually, and they're being serious. Sometimes people don't go to funerals because they feel like they don't have any funeral clothes. And they'll miss a family member's funeral because just in their mind, they don't have any nice clothes. 
So that's a, that bothers me. Does that bother you that people actually think out there that because they don't have church clothes that they cannot come to the house of God? Now, really, it's their own fault. It's their own false assumption. But we need to be careful how we look at other people. If Jesus showed up today in his clothes that he did his ministry in upon the earth, and he came in with a robe and long hair, I mean a robe, walked in here today, 2000, and sat on the front row, and we didn't know he was Jesus, okay? We just see this man walk in. There's nothing in his appearance that we should be attracted to him. He walks in here, sits on the front row, long hair. The Old Testament says he had a beard because they plucked, it, plucked his beard out whenever, whenever they were beating him up before he was nailed to the cross. How would we respond to Jesus? Would we rush to help him find a seat? Would we be quick to introduce ourselves to him? Sir, would you like to come to my Sunday school class? Sir, would you like to come to our truck retreat Wednesday night? Do you have any children? How would we respond? You see, just because someone makes a really bad wardrobe decision, it doesn't mean they don't get to have a seat at the great banquet. It doesn't mean that Jesus loves them any less. Clothing style changes. God's word does not. Men all across Europe and the American colonies, 1700s, 1800s, the upper class wore tight pants and, and wigs. And some wore makeup. Oh, I'm so thankful they outlawed that. You say, why'd they do that? Well, some good reasons. There was a lot of bugs. They couldn't take showers all the time. And, and this high class wanted to, to, to be different. So many of the men would shave their heads and they'd have these wigs made out of goat hair or horse hair. I know it's hilarious looking back, but can you imagine? This was like the normal thing. And they would put this powder in their wigs to keep the bugs away. And then it was easy just to, oh, time to go to church, to put the wig on, go down to church. You don't have to comb, brush your hair. Their hair is probably very oily because they couldn't take baths as often as we can. Style is subjective. Now, why do we dress up nice? Probably because people wanted to honor the Lord. And, and let's say people only had like three wardrobe choices, you know, in America in the 1700s, 1800s. They probably only had three or four outfits. In fact, that's all we really need, isn't it? I love it when I go to China. They wear the same pair of clothes three days in a row. It's awesome. So whenever I go, I just take like three pairs of clothes. That's all I need. Because if you change clothes every day, they look at you like you're really strange, like something happened. So for many, many years, in fact, the majority of Earth's history, most people only had just a few different choices. And so when they went to church in America, they found the best clothes they had because they're going to worship the Lord. And so they said, let's put our Sunday best on because we want to honor the Lord. So it started out good, right? 
And that was the purpose. In fact, many of us, that's why we dress nice, because we, that's why we bathe, hopefully. We, we have good hygiene when we come to worship the Lord so that our brothers and sisters will want to sit by us. But it's to honor the Lord. But if we're not careful, we'll let something that started out good cause us to have prejudice in our heart when somebody comes in here and they look different than us and they smell different than us. God loves all people. We don't get to decide who gets in and who doesn't. So the lawyer's whole problem was he was asking, what can I do to be saved? He's saying, what can I do to enter heaven? What can I do to find peace? And so he had missed the gospel already. And so the Lord was basically telling him, you can keep the law and you'll be saved. You keep the law perfectly and you'll, you'll be saved. But the problem was the attorney knew it and Jesus knew that he could never love the Lord his God is with all his heart and his neighbor perfectly. So this attorney knew what Jesus was saying. So what's the lesson in all of this? Our neighbor can be anyone. Our neighbor, we don't get to decide who is our neighbor. In fact, who on their street where they live or in an apartment complex or in a condo, who, got, who gets to decide who lives next to you? Anybody ever had some bad neighbors? Yeah. Just drive you nuts, right? Well, we don't get to decide who are, who's our neighbor. And so the question in this whole passage, I believe, is it's not, Lord, who is my neighbor? But it's, God, Father, to whom can I be a neighbor today on this Monday? As I'm going to play golf, Lord, who can I be a neighbor to? God, as, as I'm going to work early in the morning and I'm, I'm going to go sit in front of a cash register or I'm going to process orders or I'm going to sit at my desk, God, to whom can I be a neighbor? God, who's on your heart today? God, who needs a word of encouragement? God, who needs your grace? Towards the end of this passage, the Lord says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In other words, the Lord's telling this attorney, go and sow mercy. Go sow mercy. When was the last time you sowed mercy in somebody's life? You gave them what they did not deserve. You gave them kindness when they did not earn it. You gave them compassion when they didn't deserve it. Because see, at the end of the day, we all are like that Jewish man who was robbed and beat up and left for dead and nobody cared about him. And God being a good Samaritan, God being gracious God that he is, he took time out of his schedule to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He paid the price that we can never pay and could never return that payment to him. He did it for us on our behalf because he loved us. Christ's love can flow through us today to others in many ways. 
True love from the Lord is unconditional. It has no bounds. It has no limits. It's not dependent on our status. There wasn't anything in it for the Samaritan other than he cared. He probably wasn't going to get his money back. He probably wasn't going to get his time back. And yet he showed compassion for a stranger. A stranger that may have hated him. Had this gentleman passed him by on any other day, that Jewish man probably would have looked at the Samaritan with disdain inside of his heart. A stranger who had been, may have been racist to, to his face. A stranger. Aren't you thankful that God sought us out? Though we were strangers, he pursued us and he adopted us into his kingdom. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I had a tough week. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what's happening in my family. You're right, I don't know. But I know God knows. He knows and he cares. God's love for you today has no limits. It does not matter how you performed for the Lord this past week or your failures. God loves you the same. God's love for you is immeasurable. God's love for you is very real. And this morning, you may need to hear that. Did you know Jesus loves you this morning? Have you heard that lately? Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. You can trust his word. He loves you. Do you love him? Whether you do or whether you don't, he still loves you. You say, Pastor, I had a tragedy happen in my family's life. And there's a gaping hole in my heart. And that may be so. And that hole may be there until you get to heaven. But God's in the boat with you. And he understands in ways that no one else understands. Today, if you don't know Christ, would you come to know Jesus today? Would you come, lay your life down, repent of your sins and receive Christ? Would you believe Maybe you're here today and you say, I've made some mistakes. This week I made mistakes. This morning I made mistakes. And God, he may not love me. Can I tell you that's a lie? Jesus loves you. He came for the sick, for those in need, not for the righteous. He came. He loves you. And he wants to work in your life today. You say, well, I need to clean myself up. No, friend, that's not how it works. You don't clean yourself up. How many times people say, well, I need a few weeks to get my life worked out. That's not how it, that's not salvation. You come to the Lord, you bring all of that mess and all of that brokenness and all of that addiction and you ask God to forgive you. And you repent and you believe. The Bible says he'll forgive you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive you, purify you from all unrighteousness. Would you come to Christ today? I'll ask you to bow your heads. If you know right now, without a shadow of a doubt, that you do not know Christ, and you'd like to know him, I want to invite you to come walk this aisle, and we can help you. We can introduce you to the Lord, and you can be saved today.
Maybe today you realize that you have not been a very good neighbor. And maybe you just need to say, Lord, would you help me be a better neighbor? You can just pray and have a response time right where you sit. Maybe ask God to help you be sensitive to his spirit this week as you go about your schedule. Father, would you help me be sensitive to to those people you want me to speak to, to those people who you want me to sow mercy in their life, maybe people that do not deserve it. Maybe it's that neighbor that keeps knocking your garbage can over. And maybe God wants you to sow some mercy on his life. You respond as God leads. Father, thank you for this time together. Oh, this privileged time we've had to worship you. Father, your word is powerful. God, we believe it. We hold it close. God, as we respond to you, would you edify your church? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.